This is the Last Stand podcast, a mini-series on the social life of forests, reparative land management, and just climate futures on the occasion of Creative Times' newest public art commission, Kamala Shankaram's experimental opera of the same name. Over the past four decades, Creative Time has commissioned and presented ambitious public art projects with thousands of artists throughout New York City, across the country, around the world, and even in outer space. We work with artists to contribute to dialogue and debate on the most pressing issues of our times and to foster dreams for our collective future. Kamala Shankaram is a composer and performer moving freely between the worlds of experimental music and contemporary opera. Expanding over five parts and ten hours, Shankaram's The Last Stand invites us into 300 years of sonic history told entirely through field recordings. As the years unfold, the human impact on the forest becomes visceral. Species disappear, storms intensify, and the drone of highways and plains becomes constant. At the heart of the last stand is a fundamental truth that our planetary survival depends on collaboration with our natural neighbors. Welcome to the Last Stand podcast. I'm Dia Vidge, Creative Times curator and your host. This episode features a conversation between activist and writer Dean Spade and radical mycologist Peter McCoy. The two speak on what humans can learn from mushrooms. I'm Dean Spade. I live in Seattle on Duwamish land. And for like more than 20 years, I've been involved in different grassroots movements related to like prison and border abolition and queer and trans liberation and feminism and anti-colonialism and things like that. I recently wrote a book about mutual aid, which is why we're having this conversation about mutual aid together. And because um, I've been involved in movements doing that work for a long time. And mutual aid is a term that some people use to describe the part of social movement work where we're meeting each other's direct survival needs based in a shared understanding that the crises we're in were actually caused by the systems, not by the people in crisis, which is the way that people are often treated in like social services and charity. And another key thing about mutual aid is that it is like, we're meeting people's immediate needs with an invitation to collective action. So it's like, let's, give you support in housing court so you don't get evicted and would you like to join like our work to organize tenants generally or to organize for housing justice or or to like you know do an action at this landlord's house or whatever it's about building it's an on-ramp to movement building to actually get to the root causes of the crises we're facing root causes like you know capitalism and extraction and white supremacy my name's peter mccoy i'm based in portland oregon and i'm a mycology educator mushroom farmer and author and artist of sorts. I've spent nearly 20 years or more looking at, working with, and learning to see fungi and all the ways that they shape the world and have shaped the evolution of, of all species, really, and the evolution of the earth and, and the development of human cultures um, historically to the degrees that we understand it. And certainly nowadays thinking about and trying to look towards how they can better support and inform the development of human cultures going forward. So a lot of my work is a balance between uh, the science of mycology and the application of that, that information, not just in practical use like mushroom growing, but actually trying to philosophize or think deeper about what these organisms can teach us as mirrors of effective and res- resilient systems, ancient systems that do so much when we can appreciate them on a practical ecological level and sort of incorporate those understandings and insights into the ways we might operate as humans um, to better support ourselves individually, um, socially, and and in interaction with the environment. You know, we always say movements are made of relationships. They're as strong or weak as the relationships of the people in them. 
And there's this dynamic, I think people raised in capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy where people think that like you should start like movement projects or organizations and the goal should be like what you put out. Like it's like the externality, how it looks, how it looks on social media, what's your reputation, how many groceries did you deliver, how many, you know, whatever. And when we do that, when we focus externally, we neglect like the relationships. And so then, you know, organizations fall apart and people are unethical towards each other and people or people are burnt out or we're not doing the work at the right pace or we didn't actually make the decisions carefully that would make sure that we kept including more and more and more people and getting bigger or we were um, neglectful to like something that was like a blinking red light in our dynamics. And so to me, this thing that Peter was just saying that was very beautiful to me about like what the bulk of it is, is the network, is this, is these relationships, is these connections feels very true in terms of social movement work and a lot of the things that I've been thinking about around mutual aid and a lot of, I, I spent a lot of my time helping mutual aid groups d- turn their values and look at what's going on internally and how can we set up good decision making and how can we set up ways to let new people in and how can we think about um, conflict in, as like something that's inherent to doing work together that we care about, not something that means we're doing something wrong and how can we like have generative conflict and move through it and you know all of these, how do we build a group culture that we think people would wanna be in and stay in? Like all these kinds of questions are actually um, really hard questions for people who've been living in super hierarchical systems and working at jobs that are about exploiting them and making somebody rich. And so this like care for our inherent relatedness, our inability to actually get away from each other on this planet feels like something that mycelial networks are showing us to me. Seeing it through the mycelial lens is a phrase I like to say, you know, thinking like fungi, again, trying to embody them as teachers, just as we can learn from a mountain or from our our pet dog and its happiness, plants we might relate to, what can we learn from mirroring this aspect of the natural world that is so successful in practical terms, but also incredibly significant. It feels like this huge counter to this capitalist idea that like is so popular that we have to be individually successful and that like success is like climbing to the top of hierarchies and dominating people and failure is being at the bottom of the hierarchies and being dominated. And like when you're talking about how mycelial networks show us how everything, everyone is connected, I'm just thinking about like, and yet how the Haifa have like an individuality we might say, but like the individualism isn't about dominating the system. It is about bringing the wisdom of the position that particular organism is in or that, you know, that particular part is in like that. This, it just makes me think a lot about what decision making can be like when we can be in a group and be like, wow, different people have different experiences and perspectives and we want to bring them all in. And when we do consensus decision making in social movement organizations, we're saying, yeah, instead of just having some people outvote some other people because there's less of them or because they're charismatic in some way. And that often goes with, you know, weird privilege things. Instead, we're going to like actually try to hear everybody in the group and see what would make this the best possible decision that the most people could live with and that would benefit the most people. Like it's a very different definition of success. It's not like I ran my way through with my vision and I owned it. It's like how, what could everybody live with and what could like the wisdom of all these different people in all these different positions in the world and in life and in these social hierarchies, like what if we brought that wisdom together so that difference stops being a barrier to decision-making and it becomes a resource for making like a better decision than we ever would have made if one person or one group or clique won the vote. As I understand it, humans as a successful species, like the only reason humans exist is because we collaborated like endlessly all along and like to see other, to think about other organisms that only are managed to succeed through like collaboration, through sharing, through, it's like, it's very recent, the level of extraction that humans are engaged in and it's not leading towards our success or well-being. It's not generating that, but there's, it's like so hard because there's such a big brainwashing saying that like, we're naturally like gonna turn against each other if we don't have like police on the streets and like 
you know, all of these like rigid um, structures of hierarchy, like forcing people to work. So anyway, I just really loved, loved hearing your, the way that connection and success are related in the story you're telling. Yeah, I mean, it's really the, it's a, a way to phrase it, I guess, is that all Haifa have an equal voice in the mycelial network, you know, and so you can imagine in a, in a forest setting, you have this network, it's going through the soil and each individual is interacting with this piece of wood trying to eat that or fighting off this bacteria that's trying to, you know, hurt it. And they're, they're doing different things, producing different defense compounds, digestive compounds, this is how fungi grow and live. And, but they're learning about the environment and they have to tell the rest of the network, you know, this is what's going on. I need this over here. I need these resources to survive. Or there's, hey, there's good resources over here. Let's, let's pool our information or pool our energy and maybe start to grow more in this direction because it's, it's beneficial for all of us. And, you know, maybe only one tip was the one that first, um, one hypha was the first one to sort of send that signal. But thankfully the whole network listened and, and it was uh, the trust that, that they did have the right information or, or shared degree of insight that was, you know, honored, I guess, if by the rest of the network, by the rest of the, the body um, collective. The ways that accountability might show up in my seal network isn't, I don't think, as easy to see as in a human network. Again, you ostensibly as observers, we're just watching how these things operate. Ultimately, we can sort of speculate to the end of days, but we'll never be able to talk to them, or at least not yet, we can't talk to them. And so, again, it seems that, you know, you put a piece of food here and the network grows and it sort of, and it finds it, then the rest of the network might start to grow towards that food. So there is this communication and or, or there's a, you know, something uh, prohibitive and it'll grow away from that or grow around it. And so there's a communication, um, you know, rote, rote survival strategies. Now, if, if somehow the hypha encounters a bad thing and it seemingly is telling it's a good thing and the network goes there um, to be, you know, hurt or hindered, how is it accountable or held, held accountable? I mean, again, we, we wouldn't really know. I think there would be some die off, but then there's ultimately just maybe in the long run, there's, there's evolution of conversation, internal conversation. You know, we made a bad, this, this hypha made a bad mistake earlier on. A um, bunch of our, our other hyphae died, and let's never do that again. I'm involved in the movement to abolish prisons, and we talk a lot about ways of imagining accountability and justice that are not based in punishment. And it's like our society pretends that we'll be able to make good people by having the threat that will permanently exclude people and punish them. And that has not historically been the way that humans have survived, right? Most, like most human societies that exist on Earth didn't have cages, didn't put tons of people in cages, couldn't expend the resources to do so, wouldn't have chosen to do so. And somehow, created social connection that made it possible for people to have shared norms about how to treat each other that also like most human societies on earth haven't had serial killers or serial rapists or you know all the many kind of problems people go to when they imagine why we need police and prisons and to think about like how do animals and plants hold each other accountable is really cool to think about and be accountable like how do they build shared norms about collaboration or yeah like how do they cooperate in ways that have room for individual experience and also for like a greater good that maybe they're all focused on is like a very fun way to think about it. And for me, I just like just thinking about the fact that mushrooms don't have a boss and that they don't have a cop, you know, is like helpful or they don't have a, like a death penalty or a prison or like whatever the things are. There's something else going on there, a different principle organizing those relationships. It's really interesting. You know, multiple mycelial networks might 
weave together in the soil and the waste product of one becomes the, the food for the next. But that also expands to the entire ecological web where you know so much of the work that fungi do paves the way for many of the great other of the other great cycles of of, of any ecosystem um, in most landscapes whether it's uh, alpine meadow or uh, old growth forest and that's through you know all their work all their their roles we can talk about but it just more speaks broadly that the acts of the individuals in the ecosystem in these broader networks where it's separate cultures separate species and seemingly you know, distinct cultures, again, it's all about they're, they're still affecting each other. And it's this is what ecology shows us, that everything is so related in these these really intact habitats. And so and when you pull out one, you know, keystone species, one keystone relationship, one piece of that puzzle that does something really critical, really unique, is really good at that. And that's what that, you know, culture that that fungus has evolved to do. There will, can be a cascade of, of deterioration that sometimes we can't even predict. And if it's lost, it might not ever be able to recover from and so, again, this is sort of like fundamental ecology, but it's also sort of, in my mind, sort of fundamental mycology that we need to appreciate them as species, but it's also when I'm appreciating them as species, I'm appreciating the relationships, the connections, the, the, the networks and everything that comes from that. I think it's really useful to think about capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, you know, these systems that were in ableism, they they produce like a hierarchy of value, like who's valuable and who's not. And, we, and that is like throughout our society, it's like, oh, Changing diapers isn't valuable. Driving the bus isn't valuable, but making tech is—you know, whatever. We have just these extreme ways that people, some people's like labor and time and and being are made. Their labor is not compensated, or they're themselves considered disposable or warehousable, or their death doesn't matter. You know, and I mean, we saw this so intensely. We've seen this so intensely during COVID, in the sense that like people with disabilities and old people like should just die, and no one should have to worry about it, and this kind of thing. And the intensity of black death during COVID, and um, so many other ways in which COVID's deep um, the uneven rollout shows us the hierarchy of value and, and I think that like when you live inside a system that has an extreme hierarchy of value everybody's afraid of being the ordinary person you know everybody's trying to, to climb to be extraordinary and this is a capitalism story is like you know be the be, be the Oprah be the Donald Trump whatever these you know we have these figures who were told are you know be the Jeff Bezos we are obsessed with billionaires and how wonderful they are when all they are, are the people who are the most efficient extractors and wage stealers often, you know. In my book about mutual aid, I talked a little bit about like why we might want to really be cautious about fame, like about the idea that people are trying to get famous as organizers or the story that we have that social change was made by these charismatic figures. That's the ones whose names you know, who are, you know, the people we should worship and they had the answers as opposed to the reality that social change often gets narrated about charismatic figures, but in reality, it's like tons and tons and tons of bold action and risks taken by very ordinary people whose names we will never know that usually who have the most skin in the game that leads to the kind of disruption that actually changes and up, upends like harmful systems. And so this idea of that I you know learned from Buddhism of practicing to be nobody special, like what's that like internally to just let go of the idea of trying to be special and instead be part of everything? And just be like, wow, what if everything, what if there isn't a hierarchy of value? And there's also an idea that I've learned from similar teachers about no hierarchy of moments. Like what if all the time in my life is equally valuable and it's really valuable to be like driving this person to visit their loved one in prison and that's not better or worse than going to Disneyland or whatever the, you know, capitalism has told me should be my fantasy of, of what will give me pleasure and fun. And so like really changing our idea about what's pleasurable and really changing our idea about when 
like kind of stopping chasing the highs that capitalism tells us to chase, like that I want to be the one with the perfect body or the perfect vacation or whatever the story is or the perfect wedding, you know, and instead just really being in the reality of, of ordinary life and that our lives are in deeply collective experiences in which we are products of conditions that we're living in and we can only change those conditions like in cooperation with a lot of other people who will never meet, you know, in, um, and in coordination with others and, and being like, what would this, what is the skill like? What are the, what's the set of skills I need to move with others deliberately instead of the skills I need to distinguish myself on social media or to just, you know, like, and then also like to see how fame is really, really, really harmful in social movements. Like just, I mean, and just in the world, like how, you know, the Me Too movement, all, all these spaces in which we can see that people um, who become, you know, have unchecked power inevitably use it for abusing others and, and often harming themselves. And so how could we um, become suspicious and disinterested in fame and really interested in like maximum inclusion of the most people into all the processes, you know? And so it's, it's really like a, it's a rejection of hierarchy, which obviously is something I talk about all the time, but I think there's a specific set of um, seductions that people experience around like being known in social movements or having their group be known and that are that really go south pretty fast and you know break break relationships break connections make the work lose its ethics make it become exclusive um, make it become like less honest than it can be yeah so I feel like that's like a, I think it is very useful to look at the plant and animal realm and certainly humans make we we project that certain plants and animals are more charismatic or more important. But what we see again and again, like for me talking to people who are much deeper in the world of ecology, it's like, you know, when humans take out just one predator or just one, you know, if just one species is impacted by an insecticide or whatever, it can, you know, everything can become, you know, really distorted. And I think that we live in a human world that's like that, where we have, you know, said that certain people are not worthwhile and that certain people are disposable and it, it produces and cultivates like a distortion that actually harms everyone, even though it, you know, harms those people. Bringing fungi, mycology, um, and all that it offers more central to our discussions, our day-to-day -day discussions, our problem-solving discussions in whatever realm is certainly going to be increasingly occurring because of the rise of mycology and the increasing popularity. I think it's just inevitable, but it's something I've also promoted as a notion for a long time because it's something we know so little about, and it's kind of one of the last areas for for exploring our possibilities and our and our options you know in some sense especially as it comes to sciences and the natural sciences and thinking outside the box it's one of the things i really like about mycology is that it's one of the least explored sciences and probably one of the least if not the least explored natural sciences relative to you know if we want to put numbers we only have named and classified about two percent of the roughly two million fungal species so we've only barely named any that's, we hardly understand their ecology, their application for bettering human you know, society, um, and our treatment of the environment. So it's like we know so little, so there's a lot there. Mycology is one of the few sciences that actually invites and needs the amateur. We, we know so little, we have very few practicing professional mycologists. We need amateurs to just go out and try and there's so much we don't know. So it's, it's very open and inviting in a way, which is nice and kind of brings back more collaboration and, the modern mycological movement, the mycoculture as I like to call it, it is very much, um, you know, in its own way through like Facebook or, or things like this, social media becoming uh, an online, especially, you know, social network, um, distributed network, mycelial network of collaboration, sharing information, trying to move this science forward, expanding the ideas and the topics. And my work is trying to do that more through 
um, you know, my book came as an outcome of holding large gatherings that were meant to do just this, to not so much teach the skills, but to build a culture and a community around this topic that when I was a kid and learned it was completely taboo. None of my friends or family cared about it. And I had to persevere because I thought it was interesting and eventually found other people that felt the same way after many years. I feel like so much of my, my life's work is, is that I want people to see what's supposed to not be seen. You know, it's like, I feel like we're at, like capitalism, the nation state, like these are colonialism, these are spells we're under that tell you not to notice what's right in front of you. Like, you know, not to, and to believe that like your trip to Disneyland is going to make your life good. You know, like it's just like there's something, um, or to believe that you're disconnected from others or to, or, to not, or to feel numb about people being unhoused in your neighborhood or to feel like just to be like, just to be turned off and not see, like to not see the, the role of the prison in your life, even if you're not in prison or whatever. And so like the idea of seeing what we've been told is like disgusting or slimy in the case of mushrooms or, you know, like all that. It's, it's interesting to me how many people I know have like these strong feelings about mushrooms just even to eat them or whatever. I mean, I love this critique of expertise and this call for like ordinary people to study mycelial networks. Like um, I think so much of what mutual aid is, is and it relates to this question about like mutual aid disaster relief. It's like, you know, the disaster comes like, or isn't the power company going to come help us? Isn't, um, you know, FEMA going to show up? And it's like, we see again and again, no, like FEMA will show up late and only give like loans to homeowners and like nothing to unhoused people and tenants. And, um, you know, the Red Cross, all these groups that, you know, we think are supposed to solve our problems or the utility company, like they're not prepared. The state is actually organized to like help PG and EV too big to fail and be able to set California on fire and have no, nobody, you know, be able to seek any redress, you know. The systems that be are actually causing the disasters we're living through, including the ecological disasters. They're not solving them. And when the state shows up during disaster, it usually brings like militarized responses that like quickly shoot and imprison the same people that are already targeted. So I am, of course, thinking of the recent um, anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. But, you know, we see that again and again. And what it turns out is that in the face of acute disasters, the thing that's most effective is people knowing their neighbors, knowing who on this block lives in a really high story apartment and, you know, doesn't have the mobility to get down if the elevator goes out because there's no power, knowing who has a medical device that needs to be charged if there's no power and who else has a solar battery. Like that's the kind of stuff that saves people's lives is like existing relationships, existing connection um, that usually comes from having been doing the non-acute disaster emergency um, you know, uh, mutual aid, right? Like the work that people are always doing for the ongoing disasters of capitalism and white supremacy and lack of childcare and criminalization, right? So you, know, you brought up Occupy earlier. At least in my experiences, a lot of people who came and lived at Occupy encampments and it was their first political activity then went on to keep doing amazing stuff in their cities for years. You know, they learned about um, why we hate the police. They learned about like what was going on with unhoused people in their city. They became part of other things because of that first exposure. And I think that that is something I'm hoping about COVID mutual aid projects because there's been this huge explosion of mutual aid and I'm kind of the idea is sort of mainstreamed during this period. And ideally all people who practice trying out a COVID mutual aid project will then be like, oh yeah, the crisis, like I found out even more about how in my neighborhood there already are all these problems of poverty and criminalization and lack of childcare and lack of healthcare. And like, I can keep working on things about that no matter what's going on with COVID because that helped me actually understand the conditions I was living in better and see um, what it's like to collaborate with others and to not wait for experts to save us. I think as we become increasingly dominated in our day-to-day -day lives through technology if we're not already overwhelmed and inundated by it too, way too much is the perhaps often said but not as commonly enacted need to return to nature. Um, there is a study, an aspect of psychology called eco-psychology which um, 
has looked at the effect of removing humans, civilized humans, industrially civilized humans, or however you want to phrase it, uh, city dwellers perhaps from the city and the benefits of them returning to nature and all the effects on the psychology and the reduction of stress and things, plus many other benefits. Um, so that's that's a field well studied. Uh, my friend coined the term a long time ago, mycopsychology. So it goes back to this notion of how do we, when we integrate with fungi, you know, what benefits can we find there? Um, this is what I explore quite a bit throughout my book and weave into it is sort of these deeper, these senses, these feelings, these ways I've seen them, the things that has moved me about it. And, you know, in as much as I try to write about it and try to inspire, I also at the same time try to open, leave space open for interpretation and reinterpretation of these concepts that I'm trying to put forward um, for the conversation to evolve. It's helpful to remember what's natural, you know, like what well, we live in a society in which we're told that greed and hierarchy and competition is natural. And that is so obviously not true. It's really helpful to remember that we can look to other organisms in our world and see how success and aliveness come through cooperation. And I feel like that's just always good to be reminded of. The Last Stand runs from Thursdays to Sundays, starting at 8 a.m. through 6 p.m. from September 18th to October 10th, 2021, in Brooklyn's Prospect Park. Creative Time projects are free and open to the public. No tickets or advanced registration is required. Visit creativetime.org for more information. This podcast series is produced by Patrick Smith. The music in this podcast is an excerpt from The Last Stand by Kamala Shankaram. Thank you.